4, which we'll be looking at uh, together in a moment. Well, not the whole chapter, we'll be looking at uh, verse 36 onwards. This is the part in, in Luke's Gospel uh, where Jesus has risen from the dead and some of the disciples have discovered an empty tomb. Two of the disciples have gone for a long walk on the way to Emmaus and Jesus makes an appearance to them. They're kept from recognizing him straight away, but they have a profound conversation uh, with him as, as he explains what's happened to, and, uh, and the scriptures to them. They rush back to Jerusalem uh, to see uh, the rest of the 11 and the, and the other followers of Jesus to explain what they've just uh, witnessed. And it's right in that situation that we pick up um, the account of what happened next. So Luke chapter 24, verse 36. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, that's fine. You should be able to look on the screen uh, behind me there to see what we look at. So here here we go. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. A whole new era in world history begins at that point. From that moment onwards, those disciples are living in the age uh, of the last days. The, the, The church will be born. The Spirit's going to come. They're going to get used to life with Jesus enthroned in glory and living on the earth by the spirit you could uh, it's quite a transition that they encounter there they're in this room uh, frightened and startled jesus comes among them and then we see at the end as jesus ascends into heaven uh, them just worshiping and uh, and returning to jerusalem with great joy and it's as though jesus in that time is preparing them for the fact that he's going to ascend. He's not going to be with them in the same way, uh, but they're being prepared for life stretching into the future. So what does Jesus give to his disciples to equip them for life? 
to equip them for life after he's ascended to heaven. How does Jesus equip his disciples? Was what we're going to uh, consider. And as we consider it for, for them in this situation, uh, we're going to consider what is also true for us. How does the risen Jesus equip us for life now? As a believer in Jesus, in the last days, waiting for his uh, return. We're going to see a few things that were true for them and true, uh, true for us. Uh, if you have just got saved, if you've very recently decided to follow Jesus, then here we're going to look at all the things that the Lord has just given to you to lead you. If you've been a Christian for a long time, this is a reminder of what Jesus has given to you and will continue to give, will continue to, to lead you into. We're going to look at facts of what God has done and what God has given and how those continue to uh, impact our lives as we follow him. And if you're uh, at the point where you're, you're considering, should I follow Jesus? What will happen if I give my life to him? How will he help me? Uh, you wouldn't yet call yourself a believer or a Christian. You're perhaps just considering it. Well, as we look through this passage, you're going to see what the Lord will give you as you decide to give your life uh, to him. What do we see firstly? We see the Lord Jesus giving peace, pronouncing peace to these disciples. They were overwhelmed by grief and regret. Obviously, news has come to them that the tomb is empty and a couple of disciples have shared with them, well, we were walking on the road with him. Jesus himself appeared to us. But still, they're they're locked up and uh, perhaps they've had time to consider. Since the Friday, since Jesus' death, they've had the rest of Friday, they've had Saturday um, and beyond considering their loss. Their Savior has died. And considering their regret as well. All the ways in which they have just very recently failed him kind of etched on their minds. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked us to pray. We fell asleep. And that's just stayed with them. Jesus in the garden being arrested and we're told in Mark's gospel, the point came when they all fled. They all deserted him in his uh, darkest hour and his uh, moment of crisis as, he were, as it were. They left him. Perhaps Peter just etched on his mind still is that night when he denied knowing Jesus three times and then the cock crowed. Oh, he turns to Jesus. Jesus turns to him. Just a painful look. That's what he's been left with. Uh, for us as disciples of Jesus, Sometimes we can become preoccupied with sin. That's not necessarily entirely unhelpful. We were considering last week, with Ben's help, having the right attitude towards sin, recognizing the seriousness of it, and seeking to to deal with it with God's help. But sometimes we can become just preoccupied. Sometimes we can go through life kind of oblivious, not really paying attention. Thinking, "I've, I've done quite well today, like I've not sworn. And, and maybe for that reason, not, I'm not in the habit of swearing, but that's just an example. Um, uh, just, 
well, on this one issue, I'm doing quite well. And so we feel quite good about ourselves. Sometimes it's, a, it's as though we kind of peel back, lift up a carpet or peel back a curtain as we really consider and go, oh my goodness. Sometimes it can happen just because we got tired. And when we get tired, sinful attitudes rise to the surface quite quickly. Or some, for some of us, it's when we're hungry. Or it's when we're, when we're sad. Or when we're lonely. I was doing so well. All it took was not getting a good night's sleep. And now I'm profoundly aware of that which is still inside of me, kind of sin crouching at my door, trying to have mastery over my life. Suddenly, oh goodness, that's not good, was it? We can become aware of the, of the things that we've done wrong. I'm sure the disciples were thinking about those. And we can also become aware of the, of the good things that we failed to do. Perhaps we can become aware like Peter. Well, I had all the right intentions. But then also like Peter, just failed catastrophically to, to follow through. Even doing the opposite of what we said we would do. We realize our attitudes, our actions, our desires, our motivation, contaminated by sin. So notice then, the very first thing that Jesus does when he comes in to that room, these gloomy disciples, what does Jesus declare to them? What does he say to them? Verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's a greeting, peace Shalom would have been how they may have greeted one another. It's a bit more profound, though, than the, uh, just the English uh, greeting, hi. Or, I don't know, it can, it can go even lower than that, just to be like a little nod of the head and a kind of half a grunt. Uh, knock on the shoulder. You're right. Yeah, all right. Uh, Jesus comes and he gives what may have been the, the, a simple greeting, peace. Do you remember when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer? How the Lord's Prayer began? Father. Father in heaven. It says Abba. And we looked there at how the word Abba is both quite simple. It's what, it's what a little child would say to their dad. And also quite profound. It's what we're saying to the Almighty. And a term that's full of reverence. We have something similar, similar here. It's It's simple, it's everyday, and yet it's utterly profound. Jesus comes to them and says, peace. He doesn't just say hi. And we'll notice as well that he doesn't just say truce. Sometimes uneasy tension exists between between people, between brothers and sisters. Even we've seen that this week between nations. That they're no longer at at conflict with each other, but their whole relationship is incredibly tense. I think if you, uh, if you live in, in, if you lived in Kashmir, uh, you would know that tension. Pakistan and India. There's just a tension always there. Not very deeply beneath the surface. Remember it being with Blessan, uh, in, in Delhi on Air Force Day and just seeing all the helicopters flying over. Not kind of engaged in conflict, just a national show of strength. Look what we've got. Because it, the tension has never quite gone away. 70 years, and, and it's still there. And then we've seen in the news this week, quite a remarkable event between the leaders of North Korea and South Korea. 
a nation that was at war with itself, uh, 1950 to 1953. All that time has passed, and yet still, it's just, there's just been a ceasefire, an armistice. There's no official peace treaty between North Korea and South Korea. And so when they met, when the leaders of those nations met together, it's just a remarkable occasion. Still remains to be seen. How, how, what's going to be the next steps? How does this move forward? So much tension. A fragile arrangement between two parties. They used to be at war. They're not at war anymore. But you can't quite call it peace either. Not yet anyway. That there's nothing fragile about what Jesus achieved on the cross and coming out from the tomb. There's nothing fragile about his declaration, therefore, when he came to the disciples and says, peace. A war has just been won. Jesus has just conquered sin and death once and for all for everybody who believes. So Jesus is coming to the disciples saying, I have won. I have defeated sin and death. The victory is mine. Therefore, he's declaring a fact that is just achieved for all those in the kingdom of God. There's peace. There's peace between us and God. That's what Paul will pick up at the beginning of Romans 5. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. A fact that he has achieved. We can look in uh, Colossians as well. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Speaking of Jesus there. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Choosing to follow Jesus means transferring, being rescued from that dominion of darkness where we once lived, and being brought into an entirely different kingdom, the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus triumphed at the cross, and He declares to every disciple, there's peace. There's now peace. I know what's on your mind. I know what you've been thinking about. I'm well aware of your failures as well. Nevertheless, I'm declaring to you peace. I'm declaring forgiveness. That You can read further on in Colossians and you'll get to the passage that Richard read out during the time of worship. Included there, verse 21 of Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, as Richard emphasized, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't that wonderful Good news. Isn't that what shapes our lives? That's what Jesus has given to us. There is fact, peace between us and God. There is fact, forgiveness of sins and redemption. We have transferred from one kingdom to another. Now, you read a little bit backwards from that statement in verse 13 and 14, and you see what does it motivate Paul to pray? So and here's the fact. You've transferred from the kingdom of darkness and you've come over to the kingdom of light. That's what's motivating my prayer for you. That's what Paul is saying. So he's saying, well, I'm praying 
in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We're part of that kingdom of light. Therefore, Paul's prayer, God's desire, is that we're growing in bearing fruit for him. In other words, having crossed over the border into God's kingdom, that peace doesn't just mean that we hang about at the border crossing, kind of just peering back over to see what's going down in the kingdom of darkness that we've just left behind. Is there anything, is there anything good happening? Well, no. But we can be kind of just drawn back in our minds. No, the fact of peace is to lead us into God's kingdom that we're, that we're fully a part of. God, I want to be fully pleasing to you. I want to discern your will. I, I, want, I want to glorify you. Now come and strengthen me for endurance that I might keep running the race, that I might keep following you. I want to discover what you have for us in this wonderful kingdom that you've brought us into. Not just thinking, well, under cover of darkness, do you think I could just pop back across? Get involved. Maybe at night, no one will even notice that I've gone. And then I'll come back. We're not just trying to live on the border. We're coming right into the kingdom to enjoy its light here. (laughs) This is the kingdom of the son he loves. That's the kingdom that we're a part of. That peace has been declared, and that peace is something for us to grow in. Paul will write later on in Colossians, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. God wants this kingdom to increasingly be evident in our, in our lives. The peace is at work. Therefore, we know there's peace between us and God. We're giving thanks for that. And because we're knowing the peace of God, he helps us through all the uncertainties of life. Now, there, is certain, there are certain things that are absolutely solid. Whatever might be going on outside, whatever might be going on tomorrow, whatever might have happened this week, there's a peace from God that's affected my life and I know he's in the driving seat, again, as we heard earlier on. There's lots of stuff we don't know. Lots of uncertainty, but here's what's solid. Here's where I can build my life. Here's where I want to feed my heart. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. If we don't have the peace of Christ in our hearts, we can start getting tetchy. Maybe that's what's also in Paul's mind. People getting tetchy with one another. Now bear with one another. Forgive one another. Well, I can know peace, so we sometimes think like in, in these terms. I, can, I could know peace if only she weren't so annoying. If only he would sort himself out. As, as long as other, other circumstances in my life work out, then I can know peace. But no, you know peace in here, and it works outwards. Even though things aren't straightforward. I can bring peace into this situation. Not waiting for other people to be perfect before... I start bearing with them. Why? Because the peace of God has come right through into my heart. That's what Jesus gives to the disciples, this profound declaration of peace. He also then gives them proof, or many proofs, of his resurrection. We're told that the disciples, their initial response to Jesus just turning up, is, uh, is interesting. Perhaps it's not surprising in some ways. They are startled, they are frightened, they are troubled, they are doubting. Their worldview 
could allow for a ghost to have just appeared in the room. So that's, that's what they think has just happened. The ghost of Jesus is kind of like fleetingly with us, uh, and they're petrified. And so notice just how much Jesus does to prove it's really him. To prove that he is alive. For us, we might not have that worldview where we think a, we would, our first thought would be, it's a ghost. Maybe our first thought would be, I'm hallucinating. I must be dreaming. What's going on? So Jesus comes and the same proofs will, uh, would apply to every disciple. First of all, he speaks to them. Now I imagine at this point the disciples' faces are like this. So what Jesus does is he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do your doubt, why do doubts arise in your minds? And I think at that point, the disciples still look like this. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. And the disciples are doing this. Jesus goes a bit further. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And the disciples, I think, are still doing this. So Jesus is still talking to them. He's, he's, he's showing them, he's inviting them to, 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 to see and even to touch hands and feet. What's he referring to? He's referring to his wounds, isn't he? He's refer- this, this body was on the cross. This body experienced death, but now has been raised imperishable. But you can still see the wounds, but it's glorious. Jesus has got this amazing resurrection body that means he can appear behind closed, locked doors and still say, touch me. Have a look. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. They're still, their jaws are still on the floor. So he says, when he had said this, uh, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it? Maybe it's starting to get through. Maybe it's, the jaws are still on the floor, but a slight smile has come now. Am I dreaming? What's going on? This is amazing. Have you ever been that something so good has just happened, you can't believe it? I don't, but wow. Is it really true? That's their response. And so Jesus, the next thing he does, he's like, was he actually hungry? Does a resurrection body experience hunger in the same way? I don't know. But he can still demonstrate that he can eat. So he takes the fish and he eats it. And it doesn't just like drop to the floor. It's, it's actually inside him. Look, guys, it is actually me. Now, I wonder, for how long did they not quite believe? At what point did it sink in? Because we could think, oh, I thought this message was about all of us. We weren't there. We didn't touch him. Oh, and normally at this point, somebody might say, don't you just wish that you'd been there? Wouldn't that, have just, wouldn't that just make all the difference if you'd seen Jesus with your own eyes, if you could have touched him, if you could have heard him speak to you from this resurrection mouth? Oh, that, that would have just been amazing. Well, we will be with him like that one day. But I'm not sure that any of those things are what sealed it. I'm not sure yet, even at the eating of the fish, 
that the disciples are completely convinced. What convinces them of the resurrection of Jesus is a Bible study. Now maybe I think we could rightly say this is the best Bible study ever. They're with the risen Lord Jesus and he, and he explains to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Now they're going to understand it. Now it's going to make sense because they're with the risen Lord Jesus. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. As they knew it, that's the entire scripture. The law of, the, uh, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. We don't know how much Jesus went through, but he went through the scripture to say, this was all pointing to my death and my resurrection. And then it says this, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Do you wish that you had been there? I think we're allowed to say yes, that would be wonderful, but... But perhaps that might reflect that our expectations in the here and now need to be lifted when we spend time in the Word of God. Because we too have the privilege of being in in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, looking at the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and beyond. There's this wonderful... uh, uh, verse or request somewhere at the beginning of Psalm 119 where it says, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Now why don't we pray that every time we come to the scripture. We're about to read it. We're about to listen to it. We're about to take it in. Heavenly Father, open my eyes to this. You see, see what, see this dynamic. God gives us the word and he also opens our eyes. It's kind of both and. Here, here's the word of God. Now I'm going to enlighten your heart to receive it. So we too, now it might not always be profound in the sense that we get some incredible direction or we say, okay, that's what I'm going to eat for breakfast. That's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. But all the time, feeding ourselves and nourishing ourselves with the Word of God, will equip us for life in the last days. Shaping our world view, equipping us to live a faithful, godly, joyful, holy life for Him. Oh God, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in Your Word. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, He's already done that. Because you wouldn't believe in him if he hadn't come to you with the word and opened your eyes so that you could really receive it. That has happened. Now you can ask God to do it some more. But don't ask him to do it as if it's never happened in the past. The reason that you believe Jesus is Lord is because God has brought the word of God to you. And faith was, was born, as it were, in your hearts. All you're saying is, Lord, thank you, you've done that already. Would you keep doing that? Would you keep opening my eyes? 
Would you keep helping me in your word? I know that you've done it before, so I know you're going to answer me. What else happens in this passage? Well, Jesus gives them, or Jesus announces to them that soon they will receive power. But how might we expect the conversation to have unfolded? If we'd read this for the very first time, we know all about the disciples' failings, and we now know Jesus is risen. What are we expecting to happen next? He's just said, uh, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus says... Amen. That's it. That's what I'm about. So we've had a great time. I don't want you to think right now that um, it will, I think it's a total waste of time. Um, so I hope that helps, that Bible study. I think that will help you. Uh, but there is quite a lot to do right now. I've just said, you know, preaching is going to start in Jerusalem, so I've, I've got a few appointments, I've booked a few people in. Now, I think with this resurrection body, I think Pilate. I'm going to go and have a word with Pilate first. Then, I'm hoping that Herod is still in town. I mean, I'm sure you'll understand. Um, I'm going to go to Herod and the chief priests and the soldiers in the temple guard there's just quite a lot of people to squeeze in. They need to see. I'm alive. Forgiveness and salvation is available in my name. And then, well, there's like a whole world. So, oh, I don't know, Africa. Well, Rome. I'll go to Rome. Uh, I'm going to see Caesar. And, um, and then, uh, you know, having done the Roman Empire, maybe I'll head into northern Africa. I'm... I'm I'm quite keen to, sorry, mate. I'm quite keen to get to uh, uh, to India. So, disciples, you look after yourselves. I am an even busier man. Goodbye. Thank you. And and off Jesus goes to do to do the stuff. And the disciples are like, oh, well, swell. Thank you, thank you so much for for sorting that out. Thank you so much for kind of clearing that up for us. Um, I mean, and. We're, we're, we're sure to remember what you've just said, and and yeah, we we can see the mission goes on. So you go, Jesus. Have a great time, and we'll we'll be here when you get the chance. Come back, and uh, it would be great to do that again sometime. We might expect, if we were honest, we we might expect that that Jesus, the risen. Jesus would just like rock up in every throne room, in every kingdom, and say, it's me. What does he do instead? He speaks to the disciples who a few moments ago were frightened, petrified, uh, troubled, doubting. They're, they're just starting to get it. And at that point, he says, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus is committed to using his disciples. His plan is to use the weak. He's not now going to just jump to the world's way of wielding power and influence with glitz and glamour and 
smoke machines. He is planning to enable the weak and the broken men and women, fishermen and tax collectors, ordinary people, to be caught up in the purposes of God and to be his witnesses. They'll stand before rulers and authorities. They'll be arrested. They will be uh, going here and there and having divine encounters with people. They will be explaining what the scripture means now. A guy called Philip is going to go on the road to Samaria. He's going to find an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And this guy, Philip, will then say, actually, let me tell you what that means. That, that there is about Jesus. That's about what he's done. And if you want to receive what he's done, be baptized in water. Right, here's water. I'm getting baptized. That was Philip. And others will be caught up into this, uh, into this wonderful kingdom. And therefore, they need to be equipped, yes, with the peace of God. Yes, with this uh, proof, if you like, the word of God. As again, it says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So they're equipped by God's peace. They're equipped by the word of God. But they need to be equipped by the power of God. Jesus here is speaking of the, the Holy Spirit that the Father will, uh, has promised and is going to, going to send. In other words, it's not, it's not just the Word, but it is the Spirit of God. Christians can sometimes kind of separate them out into different camps. Um, as though, as we start the Christian life, we have to make this strategic choice. Am I going to fill myself up with the Word of God? Because that's one option. Or shall I fill myself up with the Spirit of God? And that's an alternative. And sometimes we can, we could mistakenly think in those terms. Churches can think in those terms and start kind of doubting and being very suspicious about people who are over on the other side. But no, we're not called to take some random choice like that this morning. I mean, this morning I decided, shall I wear the orange shirt or shall I wear the blue one? And after a brief thought, I thought, I'm going to go orange today. A bit bold, but anyway. We're not making that either-or choice. It's not be a wordy Christian or be a spirity Christian. We're not going to worship in the spirit or worship in the truth. It's, like, it's, it's spirit and truth. We can't separate out what God has joined together. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. The spirit of God is the spirit of truth. So we come to him and say, God, I, I need what your word provides. Do you realize that's what Jesus did? Jesus lived his life on the earth, empowered by the Spirit and the Word. It says in Luke chapter 4 that he was led by the Spirit as he went into a time of testing. He experienced temptation. What did he do? How did he respond to temptation? How did he overcome the temptations that were coming to him? He said, it is written. It is written. It says. Jesus had recently spent time in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And that's what enabled him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to overcome temptation. And then he, he, he went on in the power of the Spirit. Jesus didn't make a choice. 
Today I'll live by the Word, and tomorrow I'll live by the Spirit. Fundamentally, we can't, we can't think in those terms. If we, if we have a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit, I think that will lead us into a, a godly hunger and appetite for His Word. If we have an encounter with God in the Word, that will involve a fresh desire to seek the Holy Spirit with an expectation to receive. It's not a choice between the two. And we need a power that does not originate in us. The Word of God does not originate in us. We come to it and we submit our lives. And the Christian life is not supposed to be merely us adding our own effort to God's information. The Christian life is not supposed to be perpetually exhausting. God has made provision. God has says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit that the Father has promised to give you power to live the life that you're called to. Power to witness. As well as power to overcome sin and temptation. Power in order to persevere and press on. Power in order to cultivate the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our character. Power that enables us to do things that quite frankly are impossible other than by God's supernatural enabling. And so we have somebody praying out in tongues, somebody praying out uh, an interpretation. We have uh, the gifts of prophecy and other, other gifts that God enables. But God didn't just give power in order to flavor our meetings with interesting things. God, that they are relevant to build us up and strengthen us so that we go. So that we're enabled to go as witnesses of Jesus. That might not mean that being empowered by the Holy Spirit means that we, all, we feel epic. We feel like bulletproof. And so I, I know that I can be a witness to Jesus because I feel awesome right now. There might be times, dramatic times of, of blessing and empowering. Wow! And we're bowled over by it. Other times, the Spirit comes to us to enable us to keep going, to take another step, to hold on, to stand firm. The point is not, what did I experience in that moment? That, the point is, have I received power that will enable me to follow Jesus? It uses that description, doesn't it? Clothed with power. I don't think that means like we become Robocop. Don't Google that one, it's an 18. Um, we get some super kind of mechanical strength. For some of us, that might quite appeal. The idea of the Spirit coming upon us and empowering us so that the Spirit entirely takes us over and we have like no choice. We just go. But for some of us, that might sound a bit awkward and a a bit fear-inducing. Am I just going to be completely taken over in like a robotic fashion to do the will of God? It's like we're, we're wearing clothes. We all put clothes on this morning. Again, a point not to elaborate on too much. But we, we clothed ourselves with something and then we went about life. And the Spirit comes to clothe us with power to go about life. 
we still make decisions about where to go. We still make decisions about what to say. But maybe the Spirit might enable us to think, okay, I feel this morning like I feel most mornings. But I'm praying that the Lord would empower me. And therefore, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to determine to take myself out of my comfort zone. And I expect to experience encouragement and power then from the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, when I'm outside of my comfort zone, I'm going to step out. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to offer to pray for somebody. By which I mean just interacting with people who don't know Jesus yet. And that power is a fact in your life already if you believe in Jesus. If you read in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, I'm praying that the Lord might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and that also your eyes might be enlightened so that you know that which you've already got, really. The power of the resurrection is at work in your life because you believe in Jesus. It's already there. I'm praying that you might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you might know me better. Do you see that dynamic? God has done something and more is available. God is at work in power in our lives and there's more for us to step into. So again, it's not, oh God, come at me, come with me at power as though he's never done that before already. As if he's not broken into your life already. But by faith, knowing he will continue to lead, he will continue to empower. That's how the risen Lord Jesus equips his followers to live life on planet earth to his glory. With a peace that comes from him. With proof, but I suppose really with the word of God that comes to equip us. And with power from his Holy Spirit as well. That he might lead us to live life for his glory before he comes again. Are you living in the light of the peace of God? It is a fact that has been achieved. Are you, are you living a life that's dependent on the word? Just wants to be filled with his word. Are you living a life that, that knows there's more power that's available to us to enable us to step out of comfort zones and do what he would have us to do? If you are, then you can still say to the Lord, God, come afresh. Come more. Come and equip us for tomorrow, Lord. Give us everything we need. Again, Lord, we come to you. Why don't we just stand now? The band